Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Isaiah and the book of Matthew. First, Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Infants will play near the hole of the cobra. Young children will put their hands into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Now Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. You You know, the previous church I served at, the staff would go for a retreat every year for a couple of nights. And on one of these retreats a few years back, we hiked to a lake top mount, mountaintop lake. This one's called Chad Sea Lake. Uh, our senior pastor, Ken, is an avid swimmer. And so he, when we got to the shore, he said, hey, does anybody want to swim across to the other side? And uh, some of us, me included, said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, great way to cool off after a hot summer hike. Plus, I like to explore new places. I like to find out what's on the other side, so we set off. As we started making our way across, our comfort levels in the water began to be revealed. 
Ken was smooth and effortless, slowly pulling away. The rest of us kept up for a while, but slowly, one by one, we began to drop back. Halfway across, beyond treading water, mental check. How tired am I? How much further do I have to go? Is that closer than where I came from? Hold on a second. What's the closest log do I have to grab onto? Clearly, I made it across and made my way back. And it, but it was a kind of a desert experience. It was far from a desert being on a mountain lake, but it was a desert moment in my journey. I had to take note of what I had hoped to accomplish and determine if it was still possible. Do I press on? Do I turn around? Do I give up? You know, Advent is a season to attend to our hopes. Yes, the season is full of hopes of time with friends and family, hopes of gifts and making memories, hopes of, uh, of, of just all that this season brings. But I think if we're willing to wade through all of that and attend to our souls, we can also discover the, how the arrival of Christ also confronts our hopes. The hopes that drive us, but perhaps the hopes that also have crushed us, especially in those desert moments in our lives. Today's text reminds us of how Christ's arrival reveals our hopes, how Christ's arrival helps us recall hope, and how Christ's arrival helps us look to hope revealed. Revealing, reveal our hopes, recalling hope, and hope revealed. You know, just as that story I shared with you a moment ago, we don't have to be in a desert to experience a desert moment. A desert moment can happen when we realize we might be in a bit further than we bargained for. We might need to turn around. Unless you're incredibly privileged or maybe you're completely oblivious, the desert experience is something that we all encounter at some point in our lives. The desert experience can take place in a relationship. It can take place in a situation. It can take place in this growth area of our lives that we kind of want to ignore. A physical desert is something that most of us, I think, prefer to avoid. How many of you make vacation plans to go and spend time in the middle of the desert? None of us, right? It's uncomfortable, it's hot, you don't have water, you don't have food nearby, you can't, Uber doesn't deliver there. It's pretty hard to survive in the middle of a desert. But it's often in the desert experience of life that our true hopes are revealed. In that desolation, we confront our limitations. We realize the true nature of our situations. Our presuppositions about ourselves, about our strength, and about the world are often exposed for what they are. Our our, and the desert reveals our hopes. And it's at that point that we often consider, do we forge ahead with our current hopes, or do we give up and turn around? You know, the Matthew text doesn't seem to immediately connect to, to this existential angst with that, that we encounter in life. In fact, it seems a bit unsafe and harsh with John's discomforting words of wrath and judgment to come. And he seems to be directing these words towards the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
who were told, come for his baptism. But could these words be also for us today? You know, the Pharisees were a group of common people who followed extensive additional rules beyond the Torah, and that they sought to apply the Torah to everyday life. And the Sadducees were these upper-class people, aristocrats and priests, who were known for their cooperation with the Roman rulers, or if not, at least being willing to go along with it. So you could say the Pharisees were like the fundamentalists of their time, and the Sadducees were those who were willing to collude, or at least benefit from power and empire. You know, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, we're told that they curiously come to John the Baptist in the desert, who is preaching this message of repentance. And the word repent literally means to change your mind, and figuratively means to change your direction. See, turning around associated with the, the bib biblical repentance is not just turning a direction of life, but it's a way of thinking and a way of living to a different way of being and moving about in the world that we know. That's what repentance is calling us to. And for his hearers, John the Baptist, uh, in the when they come to him in the desert, these words are an invitation to remove these obstacles in our eyes, in our lives, that prevent us from receiving the Messiah and his kingdom. We all have them. John's words reveal the hopes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their hopes in their upstanding moral life, in their own righteousness, in their proximity to power and success. And I wonder if the words of John the Baptist might be relevant for us today, here, living in D.C. in 2022. In light of Jesus' kingdom, are we willing to acknowledge our hopes in our moral upstanding, in our character? Are we willing to acknowledge our hopes in our self-righteousness? And that happens on both ends of the political, social spectrum. We can be self-righteous about our conservative, theological, political, social views, but we can also be self-righteous about our progressive theological, political, and social views. We can all be like the Pharisees, where we turn some good thing into an ultimate thing by which we measure the quality of someone else of their life. But we can also be like the Sadducees in the desire to be proximate to power, that we might benefit, we might spill over in our pursuit of happiness. We can use God to fulfill our hopes rather than fulfilling our hopes in God. We often use God to fulfill our hopes rather than finding fulfillment of our hopes in God. You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to John's baptism perhaps as a badge to add to their chest of accomplishments, to check the box off of their religious list. They're hedging their bets. They're calculating. They're doing the right thing. But John the Baptist challenges them in their hopes and whether that is really their hopes are in God. Are they seeking to follow the one they proclaim to love or are they just seeking to be seen as faithful? Those are questions that we can ask ourselves. 
You know, John's call is to turn around, to repent, and think again. John's call is to think differently about ourselves and about our place in this world. And he tells the Pharisees to not rely on their pedigree, on their family lineage. He asks them what they have done lately. He asks them how, how they have lived lately. Does their, do their actions bear the fruit of their repentance? And Advent brings to us a challenge, says John. Advent is a reminder to not look back at our storylines to define us. Advent is not to look back to our pedigree or not even to look back to our trauma and to our shame to define us or to our chosen identities to define us. Advent reminds us of this world to come. Advent reminds us of this destination of this world that is promised. And the challenge is to measure our lives and our values by that vision and by that promise. Measure ourselves by the full vision and promise of Jesus and his kingdom. See, we don't measure ourselves and others by the parts of Jesus and the kingdom that we happen to agree with, the parts that we just happen to like. We do that naturally. But, but Jesus' kingdom is all-encompassing, penetrating every corner of our lives and our hearts and of this world. We don't get to pick and choose what we like about Jesus and his kingdom. For John the Baptist, the arrival of Jesus was imminent, and he was directing his hearers and these would-be baptizees to the arrival of Jesus to reframe the way that they see themselves and to see the world around them. Back to this desert experience. What desert moments have you been experiencing in your life, in your spiritual journey? What moments of desolation and hopelessness do you feel like, do I keep going or turn around? Maybe it's in a romantic relationship or in your marriage. Maybe it's in parenting or in your desire to be a parent, in your health, in your career, in your finances. This is a desert moment, God. Where are you? Yes, these desert moments are uncomfortable, but they are also opportunities for hope because they reveal our false hopes. And in these desert moments, God's grace comes to us. God's grace arrives if we're willing to pay attention to that grace. This Advent season is an invitation for us to attend to God's arrival and what that means for our lives and for our world. When John the Baptist's message of repentance in light of the Messiah comes, and it declares his impending arrival, the call of repentance is a call for us to name our false hopes. From our hopes, our hopes, to true hope in Jesus, the one who has come and the one who is to come again. Advent is a season to, that reveals our hopes, perhaps our broken hopes, but it also invites us to recall true hope. While John's message sounds here in these texts unsupportive towards his contemporaries, it would seem that it might be justified, considering the fact that the people of Israel had received a promise of hope for many generations, for hundreds of years. See, a world under the leadership of their promised Messiah had already been promised in the past, but Israel had forgotten that promise. 
And John the Baptist's seemingly tough words were an invitation to recall this hope, to recall hope in a world under the promised Messiah's rule. And Advent is a season for us to also recall that same promise, like, because like the Israelites, we too are easy, are, find it easy to forget God's promises to us. You know, no one articulates the vision of hope better than Isaiah. And that's why we come back to the words of Isaiah and to many other texts year after year and sit at the feet of the one who tells the story so well and paints this picture of a world under the leadership of the Messiah. You know, in an alpha dog-eat-dog world where controlling the narrative, managing your platform, gathering the most influencers, most people who follow you and having the deepest pockets and the biggest houses. But those things are what measure your success. We need to hear of images like this, of Isaiah, where lambs lie with wolves, where the calf and the lion, the yearling, together, and a little child leads them. Or the leopard will lie down with a goat you know, this vision sounds a bit like Simba and Timon and Pumbaa singing Hukuna Matata through the jungle. But it's much more than a feel-good cartoon picture. See, beyond the vision of this world at peace that Isaiah describes for us, it radiates from this text. What do the Hebrew scriptures tell us about this journey that we're on? That it's possible. That it, that's it in a nutshell. In this whole wild and crazy promise, the vision of a world at peace, of living out all these implications of justice and mercy, all of this is possible. No one is left behind. The marginalized, the, those with disabilities, those who have no social and political power, those that uh, Jess reminded us of as we started the service today. No one is a sad statistic at the heart of capitalism or communism. No one is unseen in this world to come. There are no haves and have-nots. It's possible for us, for what we know as enemies and predators, to live at peace with one another. And unfortunately, I'm kind of sad, where lions will no longer eat, will eat hay instead of animals, which means that we will no longer eat meat. <laughs> for the, you've, Vegans and vegetarians, that's hope for you, right? <laughs> but God's working on me too. It's possible in a seriously divided world that one day we will unite. It's possible that the effects of oppression and suffering can be reversed. Racism, gone. Inequality, gone. Discrimination because of our mental or sexual or physical states, gone. That's the promise of this world to come. And you're thinking, well, how in the world can you say all this, Andrew? It sounds just like, you know, pie in the sky, optimism. Look at the verbs of Isaiah verse 11. Chapter 11. A shoot will come up. The roots of a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He will not judge by what he sees, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. He will strike the earth. Righteousness will be his belt faithfulness, the sash around his waist, the wolf will live with the lamb, and all those wills. If you go through those 11 verses, you know how many wills there are there? There's 23 of them. 
What does that say? That's how important it is to Isaiah. You can recite them all and repeat them, self, repeat them to yourselves as a litany of hope. This isn't a maybe. This isn't a what if. It is a will. It's going to happen. Amen. It's going to happen. As much as it seems impossible to our limited eyes and hearts. On this side of Christ, we have this benefit, though. On this side of Christ's first arrival, we know that this promise is sure because the promise has already been fulfilled once. It's in process of unfolding in our lifetime. You know, this week I had the privilege to attend a state visit ceremony at the White House. And there, Presidents Biden and Macron both made these brief remarks recalling the shared heritage of France and the United States. Both recall this hope in a shared vision for democracy and fraternity and liberty and ecology. And their words conveyed a hope. They conveyed a wish, a vision. But their words were not a promise like that found in Isaiah. These are two of the most powerful men in the world living right now. But they still do not have the power. They do not have the will. They do not have the ability to guarantee that their hopes will become a reality. They cannot make their hopes a promise like the words of Isaiah. Isaiah's words point to a promise that is not just a state of being for us. It's not just a state that the world will become as world leaders hope for. Both of those things are, of course, promised in these words. But most importantly, Isaiah's words remind us of this promise of a person, not just a state, not just a state of being, but a person who will come to make all of this pass. Advent invites us to distinguish between our hopes. As you think about your hopes, whether they're spoken or unspoken in your life, what do your hopes reveal? Are they merely wishes and aspirations? Gee, I really hope I get a Christmas bonus this year. I hope that the Christmas season isn't as lonely and depressing that I anticipate it to be. Or I hope time with my family gatherings doesn't turn into a hot mess of dysfunction that I expect it to be. These are just hopes and aspirations. But are your hopes grounded in a reality that will come to pass, as Isaiah describes for us? Are our hopes grounded in the promise fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. Because if we look to the hope in Jesus, we, that hope can illuminate and invigorate the hopelessness that we might feel in all of our situations. You know, last week we introduced a song to you in the service called Hope on the Horizon. I love this song because it's, it's an honest song. It's honest in naming our desert experiences in our lives. It starts off saying, hearts break, empty hands, You've got feel, you feel like prayers have gone to waste. The promise seems so far away. That's honest. That's how we feel sometimes. But it's also hope. It's also honest about the hope that we have. It's a hope that's grounded in the person of Jesus, the promised Messiah of the world who has come once and will come once again so we can sing the lyrics boldly as it ends so we can hold on because hope is not an aspiration, it's a person. 
The, whole, the arrival of Jesus is not just a nice story to tell to inspire us to action. It's the reason for our hope. It's the proof that our hope is worth it. The past arrival of Jesus is hope revealed that fuels our hope now for Jesus' future arrival and for this world to come. The Christian faith is not hopeful because it's got the best description of the afterlife. It's not hopeful because it's the most intellectually robust. It's not hopeful because it offers the best bang for your buck for your moral ideals. The Christian faith is hopeful because hope is rooted in God's promises already fulfilled in the first arrival of Jesus. And so the hope of the world described by Isaiah is guaranteed. It's guaranteed no matter how impossible it may seem to our limited minds. We can hold on to hope with assurance, not just with optimism or aspiration, but because Jesus himself came 2,000 years ago and held on to hope for us on our behalf. You see, the good news of the Christian faith is that Jesus walked the desert path that none of us would ever want to walk, that none of us could ever walk, even if we wanted to. Now, many of us might know that Jesus spent a de- had a desert moment for 40, year, for 40 days earlier on in his life where Satan tempted him. But we also realize that he had another desert experience towards the end of his life. But he had this desert moment in a garden. And it's a desert moment where he too asked, like many of us do, Father, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, I don't want to go this way. And while the fullness of his humanity was displayed in him not wanting to go to the cross, the fullness of his divine love carried him there so that we might have true hope. See, Jesus saw the world on the other side of the cross and the other side of his resurrection. And because of what he hoped in, he walked the desert experience of being separated from the Heavenly Father so that those who trust in him do not have to experience a desert of eternal thirsting for God's presence alone. That's the hope that Jesus offers. That's the desert experience that Jesus walks on our behalf. And But this hope in Christ does more than affect this future life for us. This promise of hope informs our present life. Now, eminent theologian C.S. Lewis says this about hope. Hope is one of the theological virtues This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The people who did most for this present world are those who thought the most of this next world to come. You know, our world might like, seem like a desert, destined for lifelessness. Our created order may seem on this precipice of collapse with deserts expanding, oceans rising, and water, fresh water resources disappearing. Our world is also a desert existentially, as we thirst and question whether this will ever make it as a human species. Are we there yet? 
It may seem like we're well along this path, past the point of no return, but it doesn't have to be this way. In fact, it will not be this way if we believe the words of Isaiah. But we're not quite there yet either until Jesus arrives once again. But Advent reminds us that hope in Christ is not wishful thinking, it's not futile, it is a solid hope grounded in God's promise once fulfilled. And in Christ, the world will be made new. So we cannot only enjoy and revel in this hope during the Advent season, but we can share this hope as well. If we allow God to do so, God can reveal this true hope to others through us as we follow Christ. So may your false, may all of our false hopes be revealed this Advent season. And may you recall true hope promised by God in Christ. And may this hope be revealed through you to the glory of God.